it's another pretty dreary Tuesday in November, Tuesday, November 8th to be exact. My name is Julia Bijal. I'm your host of Unfit to Print, McGill Daily's newly resurrected radio show here on CKUT, which is 90.3 FM in Montreal, ckut.ca, on the interwebs, everywhere. So in this week's episode of Unfit, we're going to be talking a little bit about some of the content from this week's print issue including speaking to Claire Clunier, one of our photo editors, and the author of this week's feature, Never Not Nostalgic. We're also going to be chatting about our existence referendum, specifically that of the Daily Publication Society, uh, happening very soon. So please vote yes to us. Now, we also have two guests on today's show. So the other weekend, I went to the South Asian Women's Community Center to interview Dolores Chu, a historian and one of the center's founding members. After that, Desmond Cole, a Toronto-based freelance journalist and activist. While Cole is well-known in Toronto as an activist who holds police boards accountable for the unjust murders of black men, he's also quite well-known as a former Toronto Star columnist who left his job at the Star because of this activism. Cole spoke today at McGill in collaboration with Cooper's Culture Shock, and he's going to be last on the program. But first, here's This Week in the Daily on Unfit to Print. Here are this week's headlines. In news, Rayleigh Lee covered the McGill for Han Voice event, where a North Korean refugee spoke about her experience fleeing the country and what's happened since. Inori Roy wrote about the recent honorary degree that McGill has given former principal Heather Monroe Bloom. Members of the McGill community have protested this decision, arguing that she left a negative impact on the school. We have three commentary pieces this week, Two, both by Jewish students who offer different personal perspectives on how to disentangle Zionism from Judaism. They're both well worth a read. As well, we have Mila Goryab's critical piece on the Islamophobia of Bill 62. One of our sports pieces for this week is Football Scoundrels by Sean Sokolov. It's an introduction and explanation of the Rebel World Cup held in London this upcoming summer. Teams participating are unrecognized nations, underrepresented peoples, and minority groups who are otherwise unable to compete on the international stage. In culture, we have a Halloween reflection on the film Get Out, recently screened by the DPS, as well as a fascinating piece on the 7th annual South Asian Film Festival. Finally, our feature for this week, Never Not Nostalgic, is a piece of Polaroids by our photos editor, Claire Gunier. Let's listen to Claire tell us a bit about the rationale behind the project. Um, so the feature this week is a collection of Polaroids that are either of, of myself or Polaroids that I have taken over the past year. Um, not this weekend, but last weekend was my 18th birthday uh, because I'm, I'm very much a sentimental and nostalgic person. Um, I looked through all of these pictures from the past year and kind of compiled them into one collection that was then published for this week's feature. So what kind of transition... Is it coming to university, sort of the coming of age thing that people talk about? And why did you feel that that was something that was important? And how do you feel like that might connect with other students? Um, 
everyone's gone through it pretty much. Everyone has the part where they're leaving home no matter at what age. And that's kind of different. And home isn't just your parents. It's what the surroundings that you've made for yourself in any place. Even when people eventually leave here, it's going to be some form of leaving home. And so it's sort of a universal experience of um, uprooting and transferring yourself. Uh, <laughs> it's just something that everyone else goes through. And it's something that everyone else experiences differently. But there's always this common thread of this bittersweet or even mel- uh, melancholy that comes with it. So was there one photo or a few photos in particular that really had a very strong emotional connection or did you feel like you were just creating a patchwork of of this coming of age and, and each of them was sort of a, a little, I don't know, part of your memory box or however you want to put that? Yeah, you, each of them was one part of memories or different parts of the year. Like I see one, there's a few that were from my birthday party last year. There's some that were from um, my, one of my first days of my senior year of high school. I then also have one from a film festival, but my favorite ones are the ones from my best friend's uh, 18th birthday party. We went bowling, and we actually didn't do much bowling. We just kind of took a whole bunch of Polaroids and had some fun together in this old bowling alley in my hometown. And those ones mean a lot to me because she also put some ridiculous captions on a few of them that are that are in the feature as well. Uh, but there's one of us lying side by side. We both look just really peaceful and content. And I think she's like one of the people that I miss the most. So that one really stands out to me as a picture of the year because we spent a lot of the year together and really bonding. And so I just, I really love that one. And so has it been hard to leave those people and those places behind? Really hard, <laughs> actually. Yeah. I talk about it a bit in the future, but like, uh, this past year was the first year I had such a solid, lovely group of friends, and that and it just kind of expanded over the year, too, that there are roughly eight people who still live in my hometown that I care very deeply for. And it's weird to see them um, cultivate their own experiences without me and then me having my own experiences here, but still how we can converge and share, kind of like we used to, even though we're no longer in the same area. Thank you for that, Claire. So that was Claire Gunier, photos editor for the McGill Daily. Two Sundays ago, I visited the South Asian Women's Community Center, en Rue Rochelle, to speak with Dolores Chu and to listen to a talk by Frida Gutman, an artist and activist who writes a People's History of Montreal column in Le Canal. First, I chat with Dolores about the services that the community center provides to women, as well as the growing racism that is faced by women of color in Montreal. My name is Dolores Chu and I'm a founding member of the South Asian Women's Community Center. We do a lot of things. So we have a center, a physical space, which is open on weekdays or on weekends if we have special events. And so people can drop in. We offer a range of services, a lot of what we call frontline services, uh, helping new arrivals um, find housing, schools, doctors, We help people who have uh, family issues, conjugal violence, counseling. It is a women's center, uh, 
but we also work with men and if there are interpersonal issues, of course, with a woman's permission. And we offer, everything is free. You don't have to be a member. We offer free French and English language courses also, which are very popular. And we have some outreach programs for women who might not come to the center in the Park X neighborhood and the Cotonage neighborhood. Um, and for many years now, an outreach program in several high schools with uh, young women of South Asian origin. But again, it's not restricted. So we've had non-South Asian high school students who wanted to join. And it's about empowerment and dignity and race and issues of security. In light of Bill 62 and similar legislation that's been passed or has been proposed in Quebec, I asked Dolores to tell us a little bit about the current situation for the women who use the center. This current era of racism is really informed with the post 9-11 anti-Muslim positioning that has developed and increased and is, is fed and fostered by vested interests who love having issues that they can use either to distract people or build their own base. And, and again, it's very little to do with the actual people involved, but it's how they can be used. And as women, we know that we've always been used, our bodies have been used, we've been kind of included or excluded in discourse if it facilitated a political agenda. So we're very aware of those things, they inform the way we look at the world. So today I would say it's it's a very frightening time and there's a kind of legitimizing because of Trump, but you know there's also, well you know France is doing this, Belgium is doing this, Austria is doing it, so like it, it's fine, like we're we're not unique. And so the world is changing. I also come originally from India, where there is very virulent Hindu ethno-nationalism and minorities are being targeted. So it's a global phenomenon. And I feel I'm a historian and I teach history in, in Sejap. And like the fascist period, the interwar fascist period, we're living those times again. And we need to mobilize and um, do something about it. Do you feel that the women who use this center and use this service, are they also women who are mobilizing against this? Like in what ways are they affected mm-hmm. and in what ways are they able to take that labor on? Yeah, yeah, there, there's, there's, a, there's a huge, there's a whole range. So I would say an average, on average, an average woman who comes to use the center is just concerned about her family and her daily life and yet she might run into something so like being spat upon because she's wearing a hijab or being afraid but and I remember this for myself also like when I first arrived you just want to sort of fit in and get on with your life and if there's something that seems to be a problem then maybe you have to adjust to fit in. So I would say a lot of women who come here to use our services would be thinking along similar lines and therefore for those of us who've been here longer, who are involved with other organizations and movements, the onus is on us to kind of challenge because very often the people who might be most affected are not in a position to do it myself. Recently my son was saying that my daughter-in-law who's a French Quebecer is just so embarrassed she wants to leave Quebec and uh, he said no we've got to stay here because if we don't stay here and struggle the people who are being victimized are often not in a position to help themselves and so we've got to be here for them. Other activists who are fighting against 
Islamophobia and racism in the wake of Bill C-62. Sort of what kind of work have you guys been doing and what kind of suggestions do you have for people who might be listening and are really against this but don't know necessarily how to mobilize, how to best support women who are affected, who might be the same women who are using mm -hmm. this center? Yeah, I, I think it's important to engage like whatever media you're familiar with or use to respond to to things that you see out there, to, to call out the racism, to call out the lies, to call out the falsehoods and misconceptions. I think that's very, very important. Otherwise, they tend to hang there and then they become the truth. So I think that that's one level, but it, it takes a lot of work. So if more people are involved, it, it really helps. It makes it less... Uh, exhausting. I think it's good to, to join in discussions that are publicized, to join in demonstrations, to write to politicians because they're looking at their vote base and to say, hey, you've passed this law and it's really racist and I'm not happy with it and I'm, I'm not going to, to support you to, in it. In Quebec also there's um, you know, the two solitudes, the Anglo and the Franco, and I think if there's a lot more put out there in the, the French media, it's, it's much more helpful. I also think what, what is hopeful is that younger French Quebecers don't feel threatened in the same way and are more open than, say, French Quebecers who are my age or a generation older or a generation younger. I think for many of us who have grown up feeling marginalized, there's there's much more about this out there and that what happened in the past with residential schools or slavery or colonialism is continuing to affect communities in the world today. And so it's like a relief that more people are, are saying this and realizing this and thinking this. So that's hopeful. So that was Dolores Chu from the South Asian Women's Community Center. Now I'm briefly gonna to talk to you about why you, the McGill community, should vote yes to the Daily Publication Society's existence referenda. As you may or may not know, every five years, because of our contract, we have to go to the student body to get support for our non-opt-edible fee of $6 per semester. Now, the DPS covers both the McGill Daily and Le Daily. The McGill Daily has a specific anti-O or anti-oppression mandate that makes it the only paper on campus that specifically prioritizes marginalized voices, while Le Daily is the only francophone news source on McGill campus. The Daily has been around for over 100 years, starting in 1911, and Le Daily was introduced in 1977. Not only do we have a radio show, not only do we have a lot of opportunities for students to get involved in journalism of all kinds, but we also are an invaluable presence on campus. There's a lot of investigative journalism that we've done, whether it's about, uh, I don't know, asbestos in different buildings on campus, or whether it's sexual violence by members of SMU. Honestly, at The Daily and Le Daily, we've covered it all, and we really would appreciate your support. We need your support in order to exist. So I urge you all between November 13th and 16th to vote yes to the DPS and to vote yes to the free press.
name's Desmond. I'm a journalist, I'm an activist, and I am very, very happy to be here with you for part of this event, Culture Shock, and I want to thank Vanessa and everybody who's helped to put this together for doing all the hard work to make this happen and for doing all the coordination with me in order to make sure that this was possible. Um, I want to talk with everybody today about, I guess you could say media literacy, and I want to do it from a very specific perspective, which is my perspective, because um, I believe that this is how we should all do our work, basically. I believe that we all have a lens with which we view the world, and that rather than in this journalistic idea, rather than trying to pursue what people call objectivity, which I have a huge problem and which I don't believe in, I believe that we should be speaking our truths. And our truths are not separate from universal truths. We're connecting to truth through the way that we tell our own stories and the way that we're honest about the way that we want to tell our own stories. But I don't believe that that means that that's separate from the truth. Because what I want to show you today is about how the largest influences on the truth, the mainstream media, the corporate mainstream media, have a version of their truth which is not mine, have a version of what they call objectivity, which I think is completely skewed. Before we get further into his talk, uh, I do want to provide a brief background about Desmond Cole's role in the Toronto journalism scene. So here's his answer to a question about his former column for the Toronto Star. Um, so for those of you in the room who don't know, I was a Toronto Star columnist for about a year and a half. It was a dream come true when it happened for me. It's a paper I grew up reading. Um, I wrote a very well-read piece for Toronto Life magazine in 2015, which really relaunched my professional career. That piece was about uh, racist policing in the province of Ontario, really, to summarize. And it was very personal to me and my experiences. And that piece got all over the place, and I started getting a lot of success after that, including the Toronto Star asking me to be a columnist. So yes, I did leave the Toronto Star in April of this year, and it felt horrible. Um, it was a really unsatisfactory end to my time there. But things were not ideal in the least, and it was really time for me to do that, and I kind of had to. I felt like I had to do that, or that I wanted badly to choose to do that, to make a few points about what's wrong with the media and how the media is treating black people. Um, I wrote for the Star for about eight months, starting in September of 2015. And then I was told that somebody named John Hondrick wanted to have a meeting with me. John Hondrick, at that time, was the acting publisher and chair of the board of the Torstar Corporation. It's, I think, fair to say, the most powerful person at the newspaper. I had never met him. I did not know him. I was writing once a week. I want you guys to understand this thing that happened to me at the Toronto Star as primarily a labor issue. That's what it is, and I'm going to explain what I mean by that. 
I did not have a contract at the Toronto Star because they're not interested in signing one with me, ever. Nothing. I never signed a piece of paper when I started writing for them. I did not have a salary at the Toronto Star. I had to invoice for every single piece that I wrote like any other freelancer does. And I was treated like a freelancer. I was not a member of the union. So the Toronto Star has a union that did not protect me and was not there to fight for me. Um, so this man, John Hondrick, says he wants to meet with me. Eight months into my job, writing once a week. We have lunch, it's very fancy. And I'm like, you know, eventually this date is going to get to the point where he tells me that he's here to say something. And he did. And the thing that he was there to say to me was that he believed that I was writing about race too often. And that I should mix it up for the sake of my readers. For the sake of my readers, not for his sake, which is what he was actually saying. Not for people like him who are deeply uncomfortable with me talking about and naming white supremacy and anti-black racism. Not for their sake, for my readers' sake. We don't want them to get disconnected and detached and bored. Never mind that none of these people read your newspaper before I started writing for it. <laughs> Never mind that my content is really blowing up every time it gets posted on social media. Never mind that. You are going to tell me about the readership that I am creating for you. Fascinating. Tell me more. I was mad. But then about a few weeks later, I got cut from writing every week to every other week. And I was so popular, guys. I'm not trying to brag, but I'm trying to brag for a minute. <laughs> I was bringing in clicks and money and views to this website, like most columnists in this country do not do. And I have the receipts. But they didn't care about that. So first I got cut, and I was writing every other week. And when I say that this is a labor issue, I am writing for this publication on a freelance basis twice a month. They still thought that they could control me, though, even though they had never signed anything with me, even though they had no commitment with me. And so what did they do? They reprimanded me after I participated in a political protest. In April of this year, I went to a police services board meeting. The police service had promised to stop the practice of surveilling people in our city who are not suspected of a crime. We call this carding, where I'm from. It's just racial profiling, which is to say it's just racism, because I don't like even saying racial profiling anymore. Racial profiling sounds like racism for a good reason. And there is no good reason to racially profile. So it's just racism. But our police board said that they were going to stop this activity, and they did not. And all the information, personal information. We live in an information age, and what that means for me is surveillance. So when you take information from people who are not suspected of a crime and you keep it, and then when you say, well, we're not going to do that anymore, but you still hold on to all that information that you gather under suspicion of nothing, you have an end of the practice in my view. I went to the police services board to say that in April of this year, and I sat down in the chair, I gave my remarks to the police board for the five minutes that they allow you to do, and 
when it was over, they asked me to, thank you very much, you know, you can leave, and I said no. <laughs> and I just sat there. Yeah. And they asked me again and again, and I refused to move. So they adjourned the meeting. The politicians just got up, including the mayor of the city, and they just walked out of the room. Yeah. Um, 10, 15 minutes later, this is the part of the story uh, that if you just read about it, you wouldn't completely understand. 10, 15 minutes later, so remember, the politicians are now gone. The meeting's adjourned. After every meeting, the police services board, I go to almost everyone. We mill about, we talk, the media hang out and talk. That's what everybody was doing this time, too. And then four armed police officers came into the room to escort me out. What law was I breaking? What law was I breaking when four officers of the law came to take me out of that building? Who was I threatening? Nobody. If that wasn't enough, though, I get a call from the Toronto Star saying after this whole thing that they want to speak to me. So I go into my editor's office, and he says, well, Desmond, you've broken the rules of the newspaper. You're a columnist, and you can't be a columnist and an activist at the same time. I said, oh, really? Word, your rules said that? Where is it written? He had a paper <laughs> printed out for me which was the rules of the newspaper. Now remember, I never signed any contract with this organization, and they never asked me to sign one. So I had agreed to nothing. But just to be ethical and fair, and to say like, okay, well, I'm sure there are reasonable ways that you have expected me to act, and it's fair for you to tell me that, let's just give you the benefit of the doubt. What do these rules say? These rules basically say that you can't be a commentator and a reporter, or sorry, you can't be an actor and a reporter or commentator at the same time. That's what the rules say. My interpretation of that is as follows. If I had gone to the police services board meeting, done what I had done in protest, not doing my job, but just doing a Desmond protest, and then I had come back and said, I want to write a feature for the Toronto Star about my protest at the police services board, that would be breaking the rules. And I didn't do that. But Here's where it gets fun. People at the Toronto Star have done that. They've done exactly that. There's a woman named Catherine Porter who used to write for the Star who now writes for the New York Times. And three years ago, Catherine Porter went to a protest with her daughter, a protest about environmentalism. She's an environmentalist. She took her daughter to this protest. A right-wing agitator whose name I try never to say in this country was there. She got into a big fight with him. He recorded it. So she was participating in political protests. She gets into a fight with this dude, a verbal fight. And then she goes and she writes a column for the Toronto Star about this highly publicized verbal argument that she had had with the right-wing hack. People complained because he released a video of their interaction and a lot of the things that Catherine Porter wrote about her interaction were inaccurate. So she misrepresented a conversation. She didn't do what all of us are bound to do, which is tell the truth. So she got caught up in that. And the newspaper did say that they were disappointed about that. But people also complained, why is this activist writing about her experiences in, the, in, in, her, in your newspaper? You know what the Toronto Star said? They said, we know Catherine Porter is an activist. That's why we hired her. She's here to give a certain political view. And, and, by the way, they got to always throw in the little thing. They said, 
we're proud of her for making a good uh, impression for her daughter, for modeling good behavior for her daughter. That's what they said when Catherine Porter not only engaged in political protest as a columnist, but then wrote about it in her column. But when Desmond did it, he was breaking the rules of the newspaper. This is a newspaper that has had Naomi Klein as a columnist. This is a newspaper that had a woman named Michelle Landsberg as a columnist who published literally petitions in the newspaper. White women talking about environmentalism or other social justice issues, no problem. Black guy talking about white supremacy? Mm -mm. You broke the rules. You broke the rules. I'm deeply, deeply hurt is the answer to your question. I'm deeply, deeply hurt by the way I was treated, but I had to leave. They did not fire me, and they could have. I didn't have a contract. I didn't have any security with them whatsoever. But what they chose to do is to say, well, we're not saying anything. You know, we're just reminding you what the rules are. There's no consequence. You're not being punished in any way. And I decided to walk from that because I refused to be put out in that way, the way that none of my um, colleagues are expected to be um, treated and that I was treated. It was just too much. And I, I wanted to model that black people who are in this field don't have to put up with that. That was really the message that I tried to send by walking away, that we are better than that and that we don't have to take that treatment. And I did it at a time when I was at the height of my career. I think I've gone higher since, personal opinion. But I did it because I had a lot to lose and I wanted to show people that I was willing to lose something. That when you believe in something and you're in a position of authority, you have to be willing to lose something in order to express your values. And so few of us in industry and in life are ready to do this. But it's something that needs to be done right now. There is a woman named Leanne Simpson who I admire deeply. Leanne is a writer and an activist. And she is indigenous. And after this whole national debacle around um, a cultural appropriation prize where writers in Canada, white writers, were suggesting that there's nothing wrong with appropriating indigenous people's culture and that in fact there should be a prize for people who do it well. Um, research that one if you don't know what I'm talking about. But um, after that happened... I prefer not to be in a video, Um, um, thank you. Um, so after that went down, one of the people who had been really cheerleading this conversation about cultural appropriation prize is named Jonathan Kay. He, write, he used to be the editor-in-chief of Walrus Magazine, and Leanne Simpson had written a lot for Walrus Magazine. So when Jonathan Kay was unapologetic about his role in advancing this very racist idea against indigenous people, Leanne Simpson publicly wrote a letter saying, Walrus Magazine, please take down everything I've ever written for you from your website, and I'm giving you the money back. And that happened a week after I left the Toronto Star. Those of us who are in those positions in media, who identify with our race, who identify with our religion, who identify with a cultural tradition, and who are fighting so hard in this sphere, we have to do that sometimes. We have to say, I refuse to benefit from this. <coughs> to stand up. 
to make way for other people so that then when they have to deal with these um, institutions that it maybe is a little bit better. And the Toronto Star never thought I was going to leave. They went scrambling after I did that, right? And I really exposed them a little bit by doing that. But I had to. And um, it's unfortunate, but that was, that was what went down. today about um, <clears throat> how I read the news. When I read the news, uh, and I've been doing that since I was a kid, things jump out at me now that maybe didn't used to. I notice things. I've been and continue to be a print journalist, I do radio broadcasts. I'm very frequently on television. So I've worked in a lot of different mediums. I've done a podcast. So I have a lot of experience working with other people who are doing this and observing how other people do their jobs in the media and how they don't do their jobs. I believe that race, that racial identity is a very, very important way for us to put a lens on and read the news. Because race is here. It's not that we're projecting it onto the page or into the news story. It's there. We're actually pulling it out. We're teasing it out. We have to have that ability to do that, to understand what's really going on when we read the news, I believe. A lot of my work focuses on race, and there is a reason why. It's because I'm black and it matters to me. And I can't afford not to see these things. Because if you drive on the road and you can't read the signs, you're going to get into an accident. You're going to get smashed. So I can't afford not to be able to read the signs. I have to. It's for my own safety. I'm going to start with a story from... 2015, this is from um, Manitoba. And a lot of what we're gonna talk about today starts with a headline, but headlines are never the whole story, obviously. Here's a headline. Mountie takes woman home from jail to pursue a personal relationship. There is a lot of research that suggests that people only read headlines of most stories. When you're looking at a news story and there's a sidebar tab that shows you other stories that you can click on, oftentimes, think about discussions you have with people. Oh, did you read about this thing? No, I saw the headline, but I didn't really read it. It happens all the time, right? So what you put in the headline is super important. What you're trying to communicate to people to get them to read more is super important. Mountie takes woman home from jail to pursue a personal relationship is quite the headline. Uh, it is communicating something that I think is important, but I think it's doing it in uh, an irresponsible way. Um, what strikes you when you read this, if anything? Anybody? 
What strikes you about this headline? Yeah. It's about the Mountie and not the woman. It is. Uh, the Mountie is the subject of the sentence. That's true. Um, the woman has had something happen to her, but we're not sure what uh, exactly through this headline. We're also not really sure what the Mountie did either. But the thing that I have a, a, a problem with with this headline is that, and, and headline writers love to do this instead of telling us what's going on. <laughs> they like to quote somebody who's telling us what's going on instead of telling us. And I'm going to show you throughout this presentation how this is like a really big pitfall and creates really dangerous messaging sometimes. There's nothing wrong with quoting somebody because you're telling the story through what they're saying. Right? And I, I, I'm cool with that. I'm always cool with that. But what is very vaguely being described here is a sexual assault, a physical assault, an assault of some kind that is gendered. Right? That's the impression I'm guessing that most of you get when you look at that. Is that correct? That something inappropriate and abusive is going on between this authority figure, a Mountie, and a woman in jail. But they clumsily put in this quote. Where did it come from? Well, you have to read the story to find out. RCMP Constable Kevin Terrio took an intoxicated Aboriginal woman he had arrested out of a cell and drove her to his northern Manitoba home to, quote, pursue a personal relationship according to RCMP adjudication documents obtained by CBC News. That's more clear now. Now we understand a lot better picture of what's going on. I don't blame anybody for not cramming all this into the headline, but I actually think that the first sentence that I just read to you, I think that Mountie takes intoxicated Aboriginal woman he had arrested out of cell and drives her to his home is a way better headline. Because that's what happened. And instead of giving me, when you tell me the news, someone else's take on what happened, particularly the employer's take of what their now vulnerable legally and morally employee did, instead of giving me their take of what happened, just tell me. Just tell me what happened. You told me in the first sentence. Tell me in the headline. Because if you don't tell me in the headline, I see this. And you know what? You can't pursue a relationship with somebody that you kidnap and take to your home from jail. You can't pursue a relationship with that person. That's called assault. But this makes it sound like it could be consensual. And if this is all I read, this is all I understand. And it reinforces the idea that when there is a news story about something happening that we don't really understand between a man and a woman, maybe it's consensual and there's nothing really more to see here. But if I told you in the headline that he took her out of a jail cell and drove her to his house, you'd go, what the hell? You understand what I'm talking about? Does this make sense? This is what I think about when I read the news. This is what captivates my attention and makes me want to respond. Because I see this and I'm like, this is so wrong. I started reading newspapers as a very young kid, I read anything 
we got the Toronto Sun in my home growing up, which I, I grew up just outside of Toronto in a suburb called um, Oshawa. And, you know, nowadays and even when I was a kid, the Toronto Sun was not a well-respected newspaper by many. I mean, that's always controversial. Lots of newspapers are not well-respected by lots of groups of people, and it's about politics. But um, even a lot of people who like the Toronto Sun kind of admitted that it was trashy. It still is. Um, I would read that, and I would read a very specific kind of perception about race, about gender. Um, I'm going to add that the fact that this is a story in Manitoba. Now, the subheadline tells us it's a gross abuse of power, Manitoba's grand chief says of officer who was docked seven days' pay, unfortunately, because that's how we do things in Canada. Um, now you start to get the impression, grand chief. Okay. So you could have put the word indigenous in the headline. We're in a country where we're doing an inquiry into murder and missing indigenous women and girls. You could have put that in the headline. You didn't. These are the things I think about when I look at the news and I think about how they're influencing what we're taking in. If you ever want to stop me at any point, uh, please ask questions and please do stuff. I wasn't supposed to show you the other part, so I'm going to make it bigger. Um, this one that I'm showing you here, <coughs> this is another headline. And of course, it's about way more than the headline. But we can't really stop. Or we have to stop, I should say, after the headline. Group of pathetic parasites arrested after string of gang-related robberies across the GTA. Remember what I just told you about when the headline uses somebody else's description to tell us what's going on instead of just fucking telling us? Somebody's being quoted here. Anybody in this room know who it is? No, you can't know. And if you don't understand, because you know we live in a culture where people use air quotes and scare quotes all the time, and you might not know what this is meant to indicate, right? So you might not really understand. And I think media literacy is a really important part of this, is that you, you, you can't always assume that your audience knows what you're talking about and knows how you use punctuation. You can, you, can, you can help your audience by being much more clear in these instances. Um, but somebody is being quoted saying that a group of pathetic parasites were arrested after a string of gang-related robberies across the GTA. Okay. Is there more information? Um, there is. Sixteen young men have been arrested following a string of robberies around the greater Toronto area, targeting stores and banks. We have approximately 50 robberies that have occurred starting in May 2016 by a group of what I call pathetic parasites, said Toronto Police Staff Sergeant Mike Earl at a press conference. 
So what we're actually seeing here, two stories in a row, if you're paying attention to this part of it, is media citing police officials' opinions first of a story. Their opinions. Their opinions. Police don't create truth. They have opinions and they have a job to do and they have tasks. But like, just running to a police officer and being like, what happened? is not journalism. Unfortunately, in our current age, it passes for journalism, but it's not. You have to tell me first, and then you can give me context by telling me what other people are saying about it. But tell me first. First thing you told me was what Sergeant Mike Earl, Staff Sergeant Mike Earl said. Well, I got bad news for you guys. Mike Earl's a racist. What do I mean? The people that he was talking about who were arrested, who he called pathetic parasites? That's them. Sometimes I want to burn down the entire media industry. Because I have to wake up in the morning, and I do this for a living. And I have to read the words pathetic parasites used to describe people who look like this. And I just want to burn the whole thing to the ground. I want to know why media organizations, I could bring up the, um, maybe I could just do it like this. No, I can't. Um, but if you Googled Pathetic Parasites Toronto Robbery, you would see that CP24, CBC, Toronto Star, Toronto Sun, everyone used the words Pathetic Parasites in their headline, in their headline, in their headline, quoting Mike Earl, the racist. Who the fuck cares what Mike Earl thinks about these guys? That's not the story. Whatever you may believe about these men who are innocent until proven guilty and have to have a trial, what Inspector Mike Earl thinks about them is not actually the story. What they did or are alleged to have done is the story. How they were apprehended, what evidence was used to uh, indict them, those things are relevant to the story. What Mike Insp Inspector Mike Earl thinks of these people is not. And he does this all the time. I didn't bring it up. I can, because we have the internet. Um, I don't know, I, I, I don't use Safari. So I don't know how Yahoo got to be my browser. It's so gross. Because, um, oh my God, stop. <laughs> um, The same, uh, 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 the same inspector, police inspector, who gave that quote to the media. Oh, look. Oh, look what the media are doing again. What are they doing? Lunchtime bandit robs five banks on Young Street within a month. Lunchtime bandit. Lunchtime. Look at him. <laughs> look at him. <laughs> Oh, the lunchtime bandit! <laughs> that boy! 
This is the same police inspector. Listen to the way it's written. He's clean-shaven, polite, a stickler for good grammar. And he seems to prefer cold, hard cash to cold cuts. <laughs> That's the description that the suspect police are looking for. After five Young Street banks were robbed in one month, four of them during the lunch hour. We have to get this guy off the streets, hopefully before lunchtime. Staff Inspector Mike Earl, you racist, told media on Tuesday. So we are stenographers in the media industry. We are not reporters. We listen to what somebody says and we go, oh, that sounds fine. Do you think that anybody at these news conferences when Mike Earl calls black people parasites? Do you think any of the people in the media have an instinct to put their hand up and be like, why are you speaking like this? How is this furthering your investigation? Do you think this kind of commentary about members of the public is appropriate? No, they're there to get their story and keep their mouths shut. And they're actually scared, and I talk to people in my industry every day. They're actually scared that if they ask a question like the one that I just said to Mike Earl, that Mike Earl will deny their media access in the future, and then they won't be able to write good stories. So the reason that Mike Earl and the things he has to say about the news are featured in the headlines is because these people really rely on him. They don't want to make him mad. They want to do the opposite of make him mad. So they write stories like this. You guys see where I'm coming from, don't you? I can tell. Um, this is a bit more nuanced, but I think this matters here too. There is an incident um, in Toronto well, it's in the greater Toronto area, very close to, it's where I went to high school, actually. It's Whitby, Ontario. There's an incident that actually happened almost a year ago now that we only found about, out about in July. A 19-year-old black young man by the name of DeFonte Miller was brutally, brutally assaulted. There's a picture. Uh, I didn't scroll up immediately. It's um, of him with a black eye. It's not pretty, so I'm going to warn you before you look at it because I'm used to taking these images. I share these images sometimes thoughtlessly. And um, this is of a person who was very badly injured. So this is DeFonte. I'm not going to play the video. DeFonte and two friends were walking home one night last December in Whitby. Two men attacked them with a steel pipe. And uh, they beat DeFonte so badly that he has uh, lost the use of his left eye. He had bones broken in his face, in his upper body. Um, he was lying in a pool of his own blood when the police for Durham Region arrived. The two men who have now been charged with doing this are brothers, and one of them is a Toronto police officer. He was off duty when this occurred. This story represents perhaps the greatest cover-up of a police incident that I have ever seen in Ontario. And it is an ongoing cover-up. I won't get into it. I could. 
but much more attention needs to be given to this story going forward. And in something that maybe I can explain later in the Q&A or something, I was actually arrested for trying to publicize this story. I'll explain later. I'm trying to hold public officials accountable for this incident. But I want to talk about the news and how it's being talked about. Police chief denies, Toronto police chief denies cover-up in alleged violent attack by off-duty officer. Now, I'm not going to go over the thing where they talk about somebody else's opinion about it in the headline. Now you guys are seeing that. Hopefully now you're going to think about it every time you read the news. That's not what I'm mad about here, although they shouldn't do it. This is nuanced, but I have a problem with it and I want us to do better. Toronto Police Chief denies cover-up in alleged violent attack by off-duty officer. There's something about this sentence that is a little out of sync with reality in the way that it's being described. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. How can it be an alleged violent attack? How can, how can it be an alleged violent attack? That's a really good question. Because look at my boy. He was attacked. He was violently attacked, and that is not up for debate. I understand and I sympathize with the problem that I am about to try and analyze for you, but we can do better. When you say by the off-duty officer, you as a media person, I know what's going through your mind, through your editor's mind, through your publisher's mind, is liability, 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 liability. If we say the cop beat him and it hasn't gone to court, we're going to get sued. Liability, liability, liability. So this word alleged, you throw that in there, you can often just not even have to worry about the rest of it. You didn't state it as a fact, so you're safe. Let's um, read, though, a couple of these details here. Toronto Police Chief Mark Saunders is denying that there has been an attempt at a cover-up. Why do they quote someone saying that? Just use the damn words. After a delay in notifying the province's police watchdog of the alleged assault of a 19-year-old man by an off-duty police officer, while Mayor John Tory said he was disturbed by the case and unanswered questions remain. Um, if we go down, if you just do a search for the word um, and you look at the way that it's being used, more charges laid in case of alleged assault involving Toronto police officer once again. The assault part is not the alleged part, right? Down here. Toronto Police Constable Michael Terrio was charged in, connect, in charged July 18 in connection with the alleged assault of DeFonte Miller. Miller was allegedly chased down. Okay, you didn't know that part, so I get it. You can't prove the chase down part. That one's fine. Um, I don't know where else it appears here but I pulled the next story from CBC because if you do the same thing in this CBC story, the word allegedly appears 14 times. And what my problem is, is that as you mentioned, the beating is not the alleged part. The fact that the officer may have done it is the alleged part. He's alleged to have beaten DeFonte. So I believe 
that you should stop writing it over and over and over again in a way that forces you to say alleged assault. Because the assault is not the alleged part. And when you say that, you're actually trivializing what happened to this young man. You will notice that the negative consequences of the stories that I'm sharing with you are falling heavily on black people, on indigenous people, um, women, um, women of color in general, specifically black women. There's a story coming up that we're going to talk about. This just mirrors for me what's going on in the world around you every day. It's not that the media are more biased and more racist than anyone else. Media is not. The media is actually telling us a lot about ourselves when it does things like this. Because in this particular case, it's about what would be acceptable to say about this police officer. We don't even want to appear close to accusing him of anything. Now, we don't have a problem with pathetic parasites on the other side, who are also innocent until proven guilty. But with this cop, we've got to be so careful that we're going to use alleged 14 times. I took away my word search. You guys get the picture. I don't need to hammer this over your heads. This is how I read the news. That was part of Desmond Cole's workshop on how to read the news. This has been CKUT and the McGill Dilly is unfit to print. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week.